Jesus changes everything. He certainly does. I remember that. That was Easter Sunday, 2017. It was one of those rare days where we were having baptisms for people that had committed their life to Christ and uh, were choosing to display that publicly through water baptism. But there are times when I feel led by the Lord to invite people right then and there to make that commitment to Christ and then to show it through coming to baptism. And I remember when Brian jumped up. I think he was sitting over. There's nobody sitting there today, but he was sitting somewhere over there, and I remember him coming up. And I've never seen a life change so powerfully and dramatically. I've seen many lives change, but uh, John, Brian's is up there. And when we put out the challenge last week to put a testimony video, hashtag Jesus changed my life, as is happening from Christians all over the world right now, Brian was the first in our congregation to take us up on it. So Brian, thank you for letting us share your story. And while I'm at it, let me thank Angela and John and our college students who all sent us videos from where they are safely sequestered in order to minister to you and for us to come together. And God willing, as this, God willing, this will not extend too long and we will be able to worship corporately again. But until then, we hope to hear from more people wherever they are so that uh, we're just blessing each other. You know, the fact that we're keeping social distance doesn't mean we need to be distant, right? Praise God for the tools that make that happen. And just because we're not allowed to touch people doesn't mean we can't touch people uh, by blessing them and being in touch with them. And So that's what we're hoping you're feeling today. Uh, and we're so grateful that you're together with us. We are continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark that we began this past fall. And we planned the study. We timed out verse by verse, chapter by chapter, so that we would be in Mark chapter 16 today as we celebrate the resurrection. Mark has a very interesting take on the resurrection. The facts are all there. But what he chooses to focus on presents us a unique opportunity to see what the first followers of Jesus actually experienced moments after the resurrection. Now, we look back at it over 2,000 years. We, we rejoice. We know what happened. We know the risen Christ appeared and commissioned them to bring the gospel to the world. And we are worshiping today because they obeyed that mission. The church was birthed. Uh, we have experienced eternal hope and life in Christ. But that was not the experience of the first followers of Jesus on the first Easter. And Mark captures it really beautifully. So if you have a Bible or have a, an iPhone or just something where you can pull up a Bible, we're going to be reading Mark chapter 16 and we're going to read eight verses. Again, it's interesting just to be consistent with uh, Mark's gospel. Mark covers a lot of stuff in very few words. Where other gospel writers expend a fair amount of time, not only on the resurrection account and the visits, but the time following that, Mark covers the whole thing in eight verses. This has been the pattern. And for those of you that are just tuning in and haven't been part of our Mark series, uh, Mark writes to Roman Christians 
using Peter's stories of his experience with Christ. And Peter's pretty honest as he looks back. We see Peter and all of his greatness and brokenness all mixed into this story. His betrayal around Christ's crucifixion, he's very honest about. So Mark is really covering Peter's telling about this. But he's writing it to Roman Christians who have no other scripture, no, nothing else, and it's towards the end of Peter and Paul's life, both who ended their life in Rome, died not pretty close to each other in the timeline. And so Mark is recording the story of stories for those young believers, and he's focusing on two questions. The first, who is Jesus? And the second, what does it mean to follow him? We're going to be finishing the study next week, so I hope you'll tune in as Pastor Paul takes us to the remainder of this chapter. But for now, let's read this account of the resurrection of Jesus. When Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? And so we'll pause here. The focus is on the very women that in Mark chapter 15, we hear have followed this whole passion of Christ, and it says that they watched from a distance. These are the same women who appear in Mark chapter 15 twice. And we finished reading the passage last week where it just says that they saw where the body was laid. From a distance, they had followed Jesus. I think there's a, an illustration there for us. Because it's in our nature to follow death, to keep death at a distance. We, we know death is out there someplace, but we tend to keep it at bay for as long as we can. Death is the enemy. We're uncomfortable around death. We do everything we can to extend our lives so that we keep death as distant as possible. We exercise. We stay healthy. We work on our attitude. And yet every once in a while, death pushes into us and comes near a funeral, death of a friend or a family member. Many times we're very uncomfortable around funerals because death comes close and it's our habit to keep death at a distance. Today, we're in a global encounter with death through the COVID-19 crisis. Death has pushed its way into all of our psyche. It's unsettling. It's out there. But we like to keep it at a distance. Well, in some sense, the, the Marys and Salome illustrate that kind of attitude, watching, staying close. But, of course, primarily, they love Jesus. These were women that Mark records had been with Jesus in Galilee during the, the wonderful years of ministry when Jesus was full of life. Mary Magdalene had been delivered of seven demons in Galilee. They were with Jesus then. They were part of his entourage. They were among his disciples. And so they loved him. And so, of course, they were watching. 
And what we see is that Jesus had been buried quickly by Joseph of Arimathea. The Sabbath was coming. The body needed to be buried. Joseph lovingly wraps Jesus, gives Jesus his own tomb. It's interesting. It's probably the only time in history that a tomb has been called borrowed. <laughs> a borrowed tomb. I, I, I can't imagine that that's, uh, that's actually what they had in mind. We know in retrospect. I think it was a gift. And the stone had been, he'd been wrapped in cloth, but he hadn't been anointed in the, the perfumes that will uh, soften the stench of the body as it corrupts. That hadn't happened yet. And so the women were aware of that because they saw what happened. So early in the morning in love, they, they're coming to the tomb. And maybe they're just caught in one of those, uh, you know, fuddles of, of their sorrow. But as they're going, it occurs to them, well, hey, there's a stone, and it's a huge stone, two to three ton stone, that had probably been chiseled out of the very cliff into which the tomb had been cut. Because what they tended to do was to cut a form-fitted stone that was just left with a smaller stone in front of it called the dofeg that just held it in place. And then there was a groove in front of the door. And once they sealed that, what they would do is they would chip away that dofeg and then the large stone would just drop into place. It would literally roll into place and cover the opening to the tomb. And so it occurs to them, oh, not just who's going to do it, but how in the world is it going to happen? It's sort of that question. We hadn't really thought about this. But they keep going, hoping somehow they'll figure it out. And then we pick up the story in verse 4. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away already. Rolled as though uphill, some suggest the language talks about. As though a coin had been flipped on its head. That's how the stone had been rolled away. I'd, I'd heard it said that God didn't remove the stone from the tomb so that Jesus could get out. He removed the stone from the tomb so that people could get in and see that he wasn't there because he is risen. And I love the idea that he did it in the most dramatic way possible. Tossed that stone in a way that no man could toss it away. So as they come in, this is what they see. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. And they were alarmed. The word there can mean terrified. It can also mean out of one's senses. In other words, they were gobsmacked at this thought. This was beyond what they could picture in their, in their reality. They had no place to sit this. They were stunned to the point of stupefied. That's the language there. But the angel speaks. And of course, the first thing the angel says to the women is the first thing angels say every time they show up in the Gospels. What is it? Don't be afraid. Somehow angels are a little startling. Don't be afraid, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He's not here. See the place where they laid him? But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Well, just a little reminder of the angel, of everything that Jesus had set up until this point. Now, if I could forever reorient your thinking 
about the first response of the disciples to the resurrection of Jesus. If I could get a picture in all of your minds as to the initial reaction to the idea that Jesus had raised from the dead, it would be the next verse. This would be how I'd want you to picture the first Easter. It's verse 8. Listen to it. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. And they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. Now this is something I, I hope you'll understand. The gospel writers reserve the strongest language in terms of fear and terror for the resurrection of Jesus. The cross, the cross was devastating. The resurrection was terrifying. Mark uses these words. They're amazing words. Let's just go through them. Trembling. That, that means literally shaking with fear. Bewildered means displacement of the mind. Have you ever had such an experience that you're unable to even react to it? Stupefied. And then the word afraid, the core of the Greek word is the word phobos. Does that sound familiar? All of our phobias come from that word, and it literally means terrified. And so if I could forever impose on you a picture of the very first Easter, it would be three grown women, their garments pulled up to their knees, running in terror from a cemetery. Christ is risen! I'm assuming there's laughter out there right now. That was the effect I was going for. Why terror? Why, why terror as the primary reaction? Let me point out something else. In our earliest copies of Mark's gospel, this is where his story ends. That's fascinating. Excuse me for a minute. You knew this was going to happen at some point, right? I get emotional. And my nose starts, so... This is probably where Mark's original gospel ended. Pastor Paul will talk about the final verses and where we think they came from and how they got included and what they might mean for us. But just think about that, if that's true. That Mark ends his story of Jesus with women fleeing in fear. That's powerful. Why? Here's what I think. Because if Jesus is raised from the dead, that changes everything. That requires a complete reorientation of our lives. You see, we live in what I'm going to call today a, a culture of death. Now, I don't mean that we're depressed and we're just you know, staring death in the face. What I mean is, we know, all of us, that someday we're going to die. And we believe dead is dead. And so life is spent. Years ago, there was a, a beer, I think it was Miller High Life, that said you have to go, you, know, you only go around once in life, so you grab all the gusto you can. I think that speaks to, even that's an old, old uh, motto, I think it speaks to what is true in our psyche as a culture. Death is death. Time is short. Dead is dead. And so we frame all of our decisions around the time we have here. 
having all the experiences we have, we think in terms, if you're at, like at my age now, some of you in your 60s or so, you're starting to think in terms of, well, how many years are out there? What can I still do during this season? Do I have enough to carry me through? It's just always there. It's a culture of death because we all know eventually that will happen. You see? But then Jesus comes along. And the resurrected Jesus says, no, death is not the end. In fact, he goes, hey, I can work with dead. (laughs) I can do something about dead. And what that requires is for us to completely reorient ourselves and to shift ourselves out of this culture of the dead and dying into a whole different experience. We need to reorient ourselves around the idea that death is not the end. We need to reshape our life around the idea of an eternal purpose. Not just getting all we can now and experiencing all we can and then living through our friends' memories and our children and our children's children. That's the culture of death. We need to live now in such a way that fulfills a purpose for eternity, which is infinite. There's no end in eternity. So we reorient ourselves around an eternal purpose and... It requires that we reorient ourselves around an eternal relationship. You see, as long as Jesus is dead, which, by the way, is where most scholars want to leave him, it's where Thomas Jefferson left him in his Bible, with all due respect to our founding father, he didn't like any of the miracles of the Bible, and so he made his own Bible. And he got rid of all the Old Testament, got rid of all the epistles, and he only kept Jesus teaching in the Gospels, none of the miracles, and Thomas Jefferson ends the story of Jesus in the tomb. You see, that's where the culture of death finds Jesus a comfortable person to think about. Because then all I have to do is admire him for the life he lived, for the good he did, for the words he spoke about life. See? But if Jesus is raised, it's not enough to admire him. It requires a reorientation that we worship him, that we bend the knee to him as Lord, that we admit that he was telling the truth when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one will come to that Father in heaven, to that eternal destiny, but by me. And for those of us that are thoroughly comfortable in life as we know it, those ideas are terrifying. There's a thing philosophers call a limit experience. Not a philosopher, I'm going to do my very best to explain what they mean by that, but a limit experience is something that happens to a whole culture or to an individual that is totally beyond their ideas of reality, their worldviews, their belief system, the way things ought to be. It is completely outside of all of that experience and understanding to the point where they literally have the same reaction that these women did to the resurrection of Jesus. They are outside of their mind. It's as though uh, 
the, the, the mainframe is fried, you know, or, or the laptop has the, rain, the spinning rainbow of death. You know, it just can't process. It just goes into neutral and can't figure it out. Here are some examples. Personally, a doctor tells you you have cancer and you have three months to live. That's a limiting experience. That changes everything, Right? 9-11 was a limiting experience for our whole culture. I remember life before 9-11. I remember when terrorists were things that happened thousands of miles away, and all we had to worry about were criminals on this continent. 9-11 changed life for everybody. I think we're in a limiting experience right now, globally. The COVID-19 has impacted all of us to the point where things are never going to quite be the same. And maybe that's good. Maybe God's going to do some good out of this, and we're all trusting that, even as we're praying for everybody that's been hit. In our own church body now, we have uh, those that are struggling with the COVID virus. And so um, we're going to try to get through this. But this is one of those limiting experiences. We're all going to remember our life during this period, we're going to be telling stories about it because it changes things. Here's, here's the thing about limiting experience. The impact and the effect they have is permanent. Things are never going to be the same again. They are typically terrifying because they're outside of our norm. But if they're a good thing, what initially is responded to with fear and terror eventually leads to Liberty in some powerful way. The change can be positive when some limiting experiences impact us. Here's what I want you to think about. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is the ultimate limit experience. It changes everything. And if you really embrace that reality, it's fearful. It's fearful for a lot of us who are so accustomed to life among the dead and dying. This culture of death, where we believe dead is dead. And so I'm going to just make my decisions for this life alone. And you may be making good decisions, but if they're for this, this life alone, then you are living life among the tombs. Jesus invites us to something bigger. And I know for some of you that may be a fearful thought. Learning to live by eternal rules. But I promise you, this is a good limit experience. And if you get through it, you will find life. You will find liberty. You will find that the fear of death is gone. You will, as our college students cried out when they quoted from 1 Corinthians 15, and as, P, as Paul cried out for all of us, where, O oh, death, is your sting? Where, O oh, grave, is your victory? The power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Here is the Easter message. Reorient your life, because death is not the end. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for the incredible message of the empty tomb. 
We thank you that we do not just admire a dead martyr, but we serve a risen Savior who demands in that resurrection that we reorient ourselves to an eternal life and find hope in that eternal life because we orient our lives around you as our Savior, as our Lord, as our risen Christ. Father, I pray for every person that's listening here. I pray for children that are sitting with their parents who maybe are young adults right now who've been raised with these ideas of it in their mind because they're starting to grow up. They're just wondering. All those doubts, all those other views are competing for you. I pray that the truth of the risen Christ will do for them what it did for me as a young adult. It will reorient them once again around Jesus Christ, that in the years to come, they will shape their life with an eternal purpose. They will surrender and continue to walk with you. I pray for family members and for guests that have found their way to this, to this stream who know that fear who know that fear right now of COVID-19. Death has pushed near and it's unsettling to them and it's fearful. And it may be even more fearful to actually begin to entertain that there is a risen Jesus who is alive today and who requires that we deal with him. That may be fearful. But Father, it's a good thing. Jesus is a good and a steadfast Savior. He is the lover of our souls. And I pray that that fear would not keep them from him, but push them into Christ, toward Christ, that they would find hope in him, eternal peace, that death itself would lose its sting and power over them, and they would live a life with eternal worth and purpose. In Jesus' name, amen.